Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts, and not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode of Inside Fashion is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna lets you shop now and pay later, interest-free, at leading online retailers. To add Klarna to your store, visit Klarna.com. The magical thing about when you see my hats or anybody else's hats in an exhibition, they communicate in a way that clothing can't. I never had that desperation to change the world with one of my designs, as dress designers have to have, because if they don't have that, you know, they'd never make it. The relationship between a hat maker and his client, how intimate is that relationship? Very intimate. It's their interpretation of what I do is the magical part. Actually putting the hat on somebody is like crowning them. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to Inside Fashion. This week, our editor-at-large sits down with a true legend in the fashion industry, Stephen Jones. Now, we always talk about fashion designers on BOF, but we very rarely get to sit down with a milliner, someone who designs hats. And probably the most well-known and respected milliner in our industry still working today is Mr. Stephen Jones. His current exhibition at the Royal Pavilion in Brighton shows Jones's work as a curator of similar shows over the years. And Tim sits down with him to understand a little bit about the psychology of people who wear hats. So here's Stephen Jones in conversation with Tim Blanks, Inside Fashion. 
So, Stephen, um, you have a show in Brighton right now at the yes, Royal Pavilion, mm-hmm. running until June. Yeah. And what what intrigues me is that you have done quite a lot of show. It feels to me like you've done quite a lot of shows uh, since you did Hats at the VNA ten years ago. Ten years ago, and it feels like it feels to me like in that time you have made exhibitions all over the world of your work. Absolutely. Well, the Hat exhibition travelled from London and then to Brisbane and then to New York and then to Boston afterwards. So that was a span of about four years. And at the same time, what was happening is that Dior also was starting to do exhibitions. So I started to install some of those at John's behest and started to be very involved with those. And then somehow the world changed. And whereas we used to think that the final part of clothing, the life cycle of a piece of clothing used to be when somebody wore it. Now it's when you see it in an exhibition. So I don't know, right place, right time, I think. But you've become a curator yes. of the hat, like the world's premier curator of the hat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I have, but certainly... Nobody else is doing it. No. And I think the magical thing about when you see my hats or anybody else's hats in an exhibition, they communicate in a way that clothing can't. Because clothing, we can understand the beautiful asymmetric seam of a Balenciaga from 1952, but most people can't. And what people actually forget is the museums are mass entertainment. Yes, sure, there are fashionistas, but there's thousands of people going probably every day to the V&A. Some of them are really into fashion. But many of them are not. But hats actually communicate in a simple and very obvious way, in the way that clothing cannot because, I don't know, maybe it's clothing too clever, clever and hats are not too clever. I don't know really. I, no, I think because hat, hats are almost like a cartoon. Mm-hmm. Compared, if, if clothes are a movie, hats are like a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, was That's that what, a wonderful parallel. But, was that what draw, the, what draw but, you to? The, okay. But actually, hats being a cartoon... In, some of the best hats are at cartoon because hats are a cartoon for the message or a hieroglyph for the message that they convey. Hieroglyph, get yes, you. get me, <laughs> with those long fangled words. Is that what drew you to, uh, I think of you going to St. Martin's because you wanted to be, you wanted to get into fashion and you're in a fashion course. No, I, want, I wanted to be in the fabulous Central London Club. Oh, yes. Number one, and be in fashion number two. But I think it was that way around. But but then there was a... The, the, hat, the, the millinery course was next door to the course that you were in, and you were drawn next door. Is that right? No, no. Um, oh, what it correct was, but, me. Yeah. When I arrived at St. Martin's, I couldn't sew. And there were all these girls who could whip up a wedding dress during lunchtime. Um, and my tailoring tutor, this chap called Peter Crown, who owned this company called Le Chasse, a very grand haute couture house, a bit like Hardy Amy's, um, said to me that I would fail my first year if I didn't get extra help. So at that time, I became an intern in his couture house, and I was the only person I knew who did was actually working out in, in, in industry and became an intern. Um, so I went there, and I was working for the tailor, um, and doing pad stitching and making the coffee and picking up the pins and doing all those sorts of things. But next to the tailoring workroom was a millinery workroom. And those ladies in there 
they were they were laughing and talking. We weren't really allowed to talk, and somehow I thought I wanted to be with those people, and it was about the people. It really wasn't about what they were doing, but. After transferring from one day from one department to another, I had a bit of a eureka moment and thought, "This is what I'd love to do." But at that time, nobody would take me seriously. And anyway, I was doing women's wear, so hats was a bit of a diversion. Anyway, that's interesting. There's a sort of um, a rosebud moment there that you saw those women in the millinery department having fun, mm-hmm. and so you would associate hats with entertainment. Absolutely which is what they are. Yes, they're fashion too, but their entertainment, you know, the purpose of the hat is to make you entertained and the people who are looking at you and to give you a good time. Of course, there's some hats which keep you dry or keep you warm or keep you whatever, but it's what they do for you, what, how they make you feel, which is the important thing, as well as how they look. I guess you were lucky that at that time there was a, there was something happen- happening in London where people wanted to dress up. And, and what says dressing up, actually, more than a hat? So you could make hats for your friends mm-hmm. and troop off to the Blitz. Um, you had a, a sort of built-in audience. Yes, well, I mean, in at that time, we were all making our own clothes. And either they came from Oxfam or you'd make something yourself or they would come from Charles Fox, which was a big theatre costume company which closed down and they had an auction and some people they had a sale and some people bought clothes there but certainly people were making their own hats fashioning them out of bits and pieces or second-hand hats Um, and I was making new ones or actually I was quite often buying things from Oxfam as well and then reworking them buying felt hats and remaking them because that was a cheap supply chain and I had didn't have two pennies to rub together and lived off baked beans and lived in a squat I love the idea that that your first hat was actually, uh, you actually made it from a state of innocence or ignorance. Um, The covered cardboard with the spray painted plastic iris. Yes. Not realizing that flowers on hats would traditionally be silk. Yeah. You used an old piece of plastic from your mum. Yeah. Yeah. Some flowers that she got free with petrol in the 1960s. These plastic, I mean, so bizarre when you think back that um, girls used to get plastic flowers for you with petrol and men used to get whiskey glasses. (laughs) (laughs) How the world has changed. But your tutor... Yeah. Uh, Shirley Hex, yeah. They thought that was very modern to to be using these materials. So even though that was a complete accident, that did kind of set you on on your course. Yeah, so when you look back, how... It's so funny, think the things that happen and things of luck or wanting to them to happen yourself or hard work, all those things come together. And some people are very ambitious and really attempt to set this path about where they're going to be in 20 years' time or own a house by the time they're 30 or whatever. And I was really not like that. I, I never had that desperation to change the world with one of my designs, as dress designers have to have, because if they don't have that, you know, they'd never make it. They have to have that self-belief. Not that I didn't have the self-belief, but I thought, well, after all, it is just a hat. It is not the meaning to life. But but when when did it become 
obvious to you that this actually was a, a bottomless pool of of opportunity, inspiration. That you know, the, the show in Brighton has 150 hats. That's a drop in the bucket yeah, of sure. your career. Mm-hmm. People walking into that show see this panoply of spectacle, but it really is just a, a moment mm-hmm. in 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 what you've done in the last. 450 years in hats. Yes, well, it does feel like that. <laughs> yeah, it is just a moment. And, of course, when you do... It's not a retrospective, but when you create a museum, create and curate a museum display, it's about where it's being shown as well. And, of course, the pavilion has got this extraordinary and very, very strong interior, which is sort of 18th century idea of what Chinese was or what Asian was. It's absolutely nothing to do with China whatsoever. Um, And so that really informs how the display is going to be. So, for example, in the banqueting room, well, what do you do but have a banquet? You could not install a minimal, comme de garçon-esque, concrete plinth on which you would display hats. You just have to go with it. And that's why... I love that place because it looks so celebratory and hopefully the hats look celebratory within it. No, but what I'm saying is that that you have had so many years to create so much work oh, yeah. that, that sure. it le- loans itself to the Royal Pavilion in yeah. Brighton or to a concrete plinth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've, you've widened the vocabulary of the hat. Mm-hmm. as you, you just said that, you know, designers have to have this, this sense that they are going to change the world and yeah. you as the humble hatter. Mm-hmm. never really had that sense. But then you look at what you've done, and my God, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it is a, a small percentage of what I've done, because I've been working almost 40 years, and that's a lot of hats, um, and two collections a year for my own collections, and then working with so many different designers. So there's so many hats out there. I mean, 40 years' work is huge quantity of work. How many hats do you think you've designed? Oh, trillions. I've never actually worked it out. You've never worked it out? I've never worked it out. I remember trying to work out how many shows I'd done for Dior, and I. it was actually quite funny because when we were installing the Dior in... um, the the exhibition from the Musée des Arts Décoratifs, which is now at the V&A, when I was installing that with the curator Oriel Cullen, who also curated Hats and Anthology by Stephen Jones 10 years ago, she was saying, oh, well, yes, there's 20 things here from Maria Grazia and there's 15 things from John and Mark Bowen, etc. I actually counted up and saw how many objects I had within the exhibition. I had 139. And that's one show. There's another 150 in Brighton. Yeah. There's been hats. There's been how many shows have there been between hats and the hat show in Brighton, the hats of the V&A 10 years ago. How many shows have you done? I did a show, I don't know, probably 15 or so that have been in Israel, in America, in Vienna, in around the world. And let's say there's 150 hats in each of those yeah. shows. And that's just a minute sampler of what, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm dying. I would love to have a number on the hat. On, Maybe I can come back to you and stick this onto the <laughs> well, end of the say, program. Let's say it's thousands. <laughs> yes. it's, it's thousands oh, at least. Yeah, yeah. It's tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. When each, you... each one that tells a story and <sighs> each one that I remember. Um, 
I, and I, so strangely enough, I do remember them. And it, 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 how could you have 50,000 children and remember them? Yeah. But I do. I can't remember anything else, nor the day of the week, but I remember that. Well, well you know, it's, it's your diary, <laughs> mm-hmm. I suppose. If, if I held up a hat from 1983, you would know where you designed it, when you designed it, why the you designed it. it. How, how it differed to how I wanted it to look and how I moved on from there. Because designing is both a positive and a negative experience. It's the fact that there's the negativity within it which forces you to try and correct it in the next collection. And that was one very important thing that I, I've learned is that how you can kill a design by overwork. Good design, yes, sometimes it, it, it is focused, but often it's spontaneous as well. And there's, so there's a simplicity and a clarity to vision, which doesn't come from working things again and again. And what you do is you have to take that inspiration and carry it over to the next season. And there is always a next season and the next hat. And, and how... For the moment. <laughs> how self-referential is the work? Would, how often do you go back and explore notions that, that you had before that you maybe couldn't realize that now you can because fabric technology has changed or something. There's, you're able to do something that you, you weren't able to do before. Is that, the ca- is that ever the case? I mean, sometimes, I mean, certainly when you thought about going, about going over things that I'd experienced before, collections are autobiographical. Collections are a diary. And even though thematically a collection could be about the 14th century on Pluto, actually they are in a way all about my world of design, which hopefully gets bigger as opposed to contracting. Um, and, and, but sometimes it is self-referential. Um, in fact, I'm starting to work on next summer's collection at the moment, summer 2020, and I haven't really worked out what it's going to be about, but I started to see all the work of early Japanese design, in particular Isimiyaki, but also Yoji and Comte de Garçon, who I worked with. And I remembered I did a show in, I think it was 1985 in Tokyo, called London Goes to Tokyo. And this was a joint show that I did with myself and Culture Shock and Lee Bowery and many, many other... Body job- map? Body Map and John Richmond. We did a group show there. And we were just young kids doing a show. But what we didn't understand, in Japanese fashion history, that was a huge turning point in their understanding of Western fashion. And what I want to do is actually re-examine that moment, that crossover between Lee and Trojan coming down the catwalk and Isimiyaki creating a dress out of linen and of pleats, but adoring what these young British people were doing. So that, so if you ask about sort of self-reference, that's when you've been working a certain amount of time, you can't leave your own past behind. You can't disregard it. It, it is always there, but um, use it in different ways. Traditionally in fashion, it's a little bit like music that you know, there's the hit of the de- today and the hit of tomorrow. But actually, I think that idea of timing within fashion is sort of no longer relevant because it's like what's modern for one person is, is not modern for another, what's young for one person. So the idea of time and this progression of fashion 
is somehow not relevant because you could say, well, 1960s looks old fashioned now in a Western vocabulary, but maybe in Africa that looks absolutely new. It's different to different sets of people around the world. And because of the internet and the availability of information, it means that everything is bubbling under, like the map moss from Barbarella, all the time. And you can take whatever you want. But how personal is that for you then? That this is what your summer collection is. It's an extremely personal reference. Yeah, yeah. And most people looking at the hat, looking at a single hat from that collection, yeah. will never ever appreciate no. the resonance. Yes. Is that something that you find poignant or is that something you just find a fact of, a fact of the job? That's a fact of the job. And actually, I don't mind it because, yes, you can reference something in a collection and it can be this painting or that contemporary artist or whatever. Actually, all of that is totally irrelevant. What's relevant is what you make from it. It's not the reference. And sometimes people really talk about the reference, giving it a particular authority. Well, actually, that item that you create should have its own authority by itself. Do not link it to something else to give it a certain sort of grandeur. I think that's a big design mistake and certainly not applicable to me. However, having said that, that is just the same as a photograph of a Dior dress being taken on the steps of the opera in Paris. That gives it its grandeur, so that's the envelope around it. But I don't know, that's a, a personal discussion that I will have within my mind, which will send me to sleep every night for many years to come. <laughs> but no, I think, I think that's very interesting because if you think about, a hat is a standalone object. Yeah. If you think about a fabulous fashion image that, you know, like the, a, a Dior dress on the steps of the Opera House, probably taken by Richard Avedon and worn by mm -hmm. Davima or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, people are, are aware of a context yeah. for, for that. You know, it is maybe Dior New Look or whatever. They're aware of the story. Mm -hmm. A hat sits in solitary splendor as almost like a piece of sculpture. And you respond to it as in itself, you know, as an object, yeah, yeah, yeah. which actually is is incredibly powerful yeah. if you get the hat right. If you get the hat right. If you get the hat wrong, it can be totally destructive. Well, people, you, you just ignore it if you get the hat wrong. But it seems to me you've made a career of getting the hat right an awful lot. Well, I hope so. <laughs> um, me getting a hat right is not only because of me, because it, Often it's because of the person that I'm working with or how it's being put on. You know, a hat is never really seen in isolation. A hat is about the time and the place where it becomes that thing which is worn. That's the, slightly the problem with exhibitions is that, yes, it's wonderful to see those things, but they're stationary. And actually, fashion or hats or whatever are much more interesting when they're moving around on that person and that person is responding to whatever they're wearing. Although I'm thinking with a lot of your hat, not a lot, but, but some of your most fabulous hats, the hats that I love the most, you almost, you'll probably think this is completely insulting, but you almost don't want to see them on people moving around and with their mm -hmm. squat little human kind of gyration. Yeah. Because you've done a hat which looks like a kite in flight. 
Yeah, yeah. And once you pop that on a human head, they're going to get it stuck in their T-shirt or something when they've got their hair on. Oh, yes, absolutely. And then they'll spoil their drink. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, there's just, I feel, I've always been curious about that with you, that when you're making something supremely aerodynamic or challenging gravity in some way, how you can even conceive of it being on, on top of a, you know, a human body, which is going to root it to the ground instead of letting it fly, fly to the sky. Well, hopefully the hat is going to make the body fly to the sky too. That's its purpose. I, I cannot really say that the hat is just a frame for the person who's wearing it, even though Vivian Westwood once said in the quote about me, that when a woman comes into a room wearing a Stephen Jones hat, everybody says how wonderful she looks as opposed to what the hat is, which I think is a fantastic thing to say, but I've questioned that for 30 years. Is that a good point of view or a bad point? Do I, do I want to make things which are more imposing to that? Yes, I do think that I want to make things which are more imposing, but unless the person can control that thing which is on their head, it does become an imposition. But it's it's a little bit like an argument. You know, you can argue things either way. Sometimes it's great when it's an imposition because that thing that they have on the head can do the talking for the person. So the person can just relax underneath and, you know, mm. not be magical. It's not talk to the hand, it's talk to the hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and then sometimes it can be an evocation of the person's character, or sometimes it's the opposite to somebody's character. Maybe it can make you look elegant and serene. Maybe it can make you look or feel young and funky. Um, it's certainly they're certainly extremely transformative. Have have you, when you're designing, have you got in your head notions of the perfect symbiosis between hat and? wearer? I mean, are there people who embody, who are the perfect hat wearer in your head? Absolutely. Um, I always but I'm, think that, but I'm actually very good at adapting my hat designs to the person's head because I you know, started with couture and I understand totally. I put a hat on somebody and I can see, yes, the brim needs to look a little bit bigger or this needs to be changed to adapt to make it suit them perfectly. But I'm almost too good at doing that. And so if I'm thinking, yes, this hat is, I'm making it in, the, in my head, I'm making this for Rihanna. And in reality, I might be making it for Rihanna as well. It will be just good for her and maybe nobody else. So is the, do I have a, a muse that is there in my head all the time? No. And if there is one, it changes. But that's been different throughout my career. For example, when I first started, Sibylla Sanfal was working with me and she was gorgeous and extraordinary and beautiful and I would make hats to suit her. But it suited her and her stature and her personality and not so many other people. And the same thing with Princess Julia. But so that changes all the time and it mutates every season. What about Princess Diana? Making hats for her. Mm. There were things that I made for her... The thing that was important with her, she actually suited absolute simplicity mm. because she had quite a complex face, quite complex hair. And in fact, 
later on in life when she had all her hair cut off and Sam McKnight cut it and Mary Greenwell did her makeup and Mario Testino took the photograph for the cover of Vogue when suddenly she was an evocation of sort of simplicity, that's when she looked best. And it was simple things which suited her best of all. Are they more challenging so to, to create a perfect, a perfectly simple gesture? It's a very different mentality. If I put it in clothing terms, in a way, yes, it's much more difficult to make a simple crepe machine jacket than it is a ball gown. But a ball gown is a, a successful ball gown and a Dior ball gown or a Charles James ball gown is a complete feat of engineering as well. So, yes, sometimes things are simpler. One thing about making simple hats, um, and as I'm thinking now, I'm thinking of the hat I made for Doria Ragland for um, uh, Meghan and Harry's wedding, that a simple hat sort of has to be perfect and need many, many, many experiments of how to make the thing look effortless. That's when the hat and the wearer really become one. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens, but it happens rarely. But the same is true in fashion. You know, when you think of Jerry Hall in an opium ad, that's when the clothes and the person become one. If you think of um, Skepta wearing Kim Jones, that's when it becomes one. That's, those are sort of truly magical times in fashion, but they happen more through luck than by design. Well, I think, I think, I think <laughs> Funnily um, enough, <laughs> the hat you designed for Megan's mother was a case in point because I didn't get the feeling she was a woman who wore hats a lot, but that hat was so, yeah. that hat was what people remembered mm -hmm. from it that. It was just a lick on the side of her head. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And then you've done a beret. You did the beret for Megan. And then I, I think it's interesting that anyone who, who there's a lot of media attention on, mm -hmm. you have to strike this balance between making a hat for them, making a hat which gets them the kind of attention that they want, not people saying, well, she had a boring old beret on or something. You have to make something which strikes this balance between the but between enhancing them and, and not detracting from mm -hmm. them. I mean, I, I guess that's the challenge for the hat maker anyway. You want to enhance the character in a way that doesn't make them so mm -hmm. a sort of the center of attention to the point where it seems like they're oh, yes. exhibitionist or something. Yes, because they, in a way, don't want the attention. They have all the attention in the world. They want to slightly deflect attention. Mm, and that's right, yes. Certainly, um, Doria Ragland would say, well, that day was all about her daughter and her future son-in-law. It was nothing to do with her. But I remember um, having a conversation with Maria Grancia. This was for this win winter 2018 collection. And we were trying to plan what we were going to do. And, and there was something about the reality of clothing that she was very interested in within the haute couture framework. And she said, but Stephen, you know, we can do all these extravagant hats, but what do people actually order from you? And I said, well, they can order this or that. So, but so often those ladies want to appear fashionable, yes, but most importantly, they want to appear well-dressed, which is such an alien concept to the world of magazines or what's supposed to be, 
young or evocative or challenging or whatever. Just the idea of being well-dressed. It's a very unfashionable idea. And it's actually quite difficult to achieve. Um, but for those people in the public eye, it's those photographs are going to be seen in 10, 20, 200 years' time. And if they're... Of course, if we look at pictures of Queen Mary now, we think of <laughs> 1910. But it's much better to be outside the vagaries of fashion than inside if you're somebody of that status. And, and so how do you address that challenge? Like somebody who wants to be well-dressed without looking like a slave to fashion, what, what, what kind of hat complements that challenge? It's often a question of education to them from me about how they could look and trial and error. You never really know. I will try on 20, 30 hats on the client until I find something. And often they're thinking that the hat should be this big fancy thing, but I will try and make it simpler and calmer. Of course, those are not the sorts of hats which make headlines, nor are in exhibit in, the, in Brighton because they don't tell such a loud story. They're more of a whisper than a, a trumpet salute. But... Um, they're a very important part of my work. And it's sort of how I started off, too. When I was working at Le Chasse all those years ago, I would attend fittings. And, I mean, it was quite funny because, well, maybe it was rather sick in a way, but um, the owner of the company would actually read the um, Daily Telegraph every morning to read the obituaries to make sure that we weren't working on any of the clients. So they didn't exactly have, have a young clientele. Um, but... Often those ladies would come back in every year and have their hat retrimmed. They'd all grown up during the war. They all sort of recycled in their own way. So their, their tweed jackets would be let in or out with large turnings left on the side seams. And their hats would... Uh, my job was to cut the turnings off the inside of blouses and join all those little pieces of fabric together and make a flower or a new trim from them. So um, it was very sustainable. To make do and mend. Yeah, to, to, to use today's parlance or make do and mend to use wartime parlance. Um, but certainly that taught me the understanding of subtlety um, and, and discretion um, and how that's quite beautiful as well. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. 
Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So now in your business, what percentage of, of your business is the hats that you are making for people and the hats that you are making for yourself? Because I can't imagine people walk in and say, give me a kite with a long tag of ribbony things. No, or but do they, they? Will phone, they, will, they will phone up and they will say, I'm having a party or I'm going to a ball and it's in Monte Carlo, St. Petersburg outside Shanghai, and the theme is multicolour. What, can, what fan, wonderful fantasy object can you make me that I can put on my head? And it's about fun, and it really is about the party. And so, yes, absolutely, I have a client for that, and I have a client who's coming in and want to have something very simple and elegant because they're inspecting the troops in America, and I have a client who wants a fabulous thing for a runway show in New York during New York Fashion Week. I wish there was a client who needed something fabulous for Brexit negotiations so they well, could the go queen, to her head the, and make her think straight. Well, the, Her Majesty the Queen already wore that on the day that she had to read the um, uh, Open Parliament. Um, when the, she had to announce Brexit was actually going to happen, she wore a royal blue hat with yellow daisies, just like the um, European flag. And you know her entire reign has been about unity and bringing people together. How fabulous. And why didn't we listen? Why didn't we get that signal that she was sending to us that day, that fateful day? Well, because that happened after the event. Yes, true. Um, Discretion intrigues me. Uh, The relationship between a hat maker and his client. Mm-hmm. Um, how intimate is that relationship? Very intimate. Um, it's funny, sometimes I can tell you about discretion, uh, but I can give you one illustration of that. When Rihanna was getting ready for the Met last year, the, she was wearing a Marti- Margiela um, outfit, and she, was wearing, she had the option of two or three different mitres, and I went into the bathroom with her and everybody had been saying, oh, you should wear that one, you should be wearing that one, you should wear this combination with this sort of shoe. 
And I said, well, now we've got your hat. And it was her and me in front of the mirror. And I said, I know everybody's telling you, giving you their opinion. I said, but how do you want to look? And I don't think anybody had actually asked her that question because everybody has got different agendas. So it is something which is very private and um, often a simple thing and you just need to have a pause to put the hat on. But actually putting the hat on somebody is like crowning them. And I put it on and I take it off again and I put it on again and then take it off and I'll say, you put it on yourself. Because actually it's their interpretation of what I do is the magical part. It's a bit like when I'm working with a dress designer. Um, it's the collaboration of thing, uh, the idea of what we come up with together is more interesting than what I would come up by myself, maybe, or what they would come up with. See, I imagine, I, what you just said there, I imagine I see you as a kind of therapist, an archbishop, as you're crowning people, mm -hmm. but at the same time, a therapist, that you are oh. working with people's... <laughs> totally, totally. ...absolute insecurities, because mm -hmm. people are insecure when you put a hat on their head. Yeah. At first. Yes. But then you're, when you're working with designers, and the designers that you have worked with, I mean... John Galliano to Ray Kawakubo, you have covered the waterfront, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. are having to anticipate, uh, you're having to kind of uh, just imagine, like tr trying to visualize what it is that could possibly complement the incredible range of, of clothing that they're giving you, from the most romantic to the most avant-garde. How do you do that? Well, number one, I think the hats that I make an extension of the conversation that we're having. So, for example, when I go into a meeting or go and see, when I arrive in New York, or we've been, you know, with Mark Jacobs, for example, we've been FaceTiming, I've been making twirls, and we're getting more and more frustrated with each other because the FaceTime keeps crashing and the sketches won't go through and it's the wrong color and the sample wasn't delivered, but it's been held by customs. When I arrive at Mark's, a few days or a week before the show, we always sort of embrace each other very strongly and he will always say, thank God you're here. So it is, in a, in a way, sort of a love affair, but it is a very sort of closeness that I have to feel with that designer and also make them feel comfortable so they can express themselves. Because if they're expressing themselves about clothing, it's maybe more natural for them. But... With a hat, maybe they don't know. So I need to explain to them, or I need to make them create an envelope around them within which, or a little comfy bed around them within which they feel the freedom to express themselves. Do you feel that you... And then from that, then we can have the conversation, which is an honest conversation, and I could start to try and express an idea that maybe we're developing together. What happens when a designer shows you something that you absolutely have no affinity for? Well, which I completely hate. Well, I always think it's quite a challenge to make it something which I quite love. But With your hat? Yeah, yeah. Um, something that I completely hate. Now, why would I hate that thing? Is it because my, pre my preconceived ideas of what's ugly or beautiful? Maybe it is. So you should never, ever judge before you've given it a chance, because you have to be a good listener. Yes, you can come with all your... I remember saying to Loren Scott, 
you know, how did you work for years and years, all, all those years working for Vanity Fair with those Hollywood actresses? And, you know, it's a bit nervous and it's about egos. And she said, you just leave your ego at the door and you try and do your job and eventually it works. And I think that's, that is one way of working. I didn't think I leave my ego at the door completely because I do, I do have an ego. Um, I remember once having a conversation with Stephen Robinson, who was John Galliano's assistant for many, many years. And um, it was after a show and there's been some infighting within the design studio. And after the show, Stephen gathered everybody around and he said, look, he said, Stephen Jones is really zen. He doesn't have any ego. He comes in, he does his job and it's all fine. And I said, Stephen, you've got me so wrong. I have such a huge ego. I have to have my own company in London because I'd never be satisfied with this. You're saying that actually when you're working with people who, who present you with things that aren't necessarily compatible, particularly mm-hmm. with what you do, you're able to insinuate them yourself into their aesthetic yeah, yeah. because you have and your own company them. in London yeah, yeah. where you can express your own ravening yeah, yeah. ego mm-hmm. with no fear of anyone saying that's wrong yes. and you can go away and be the nicest guy in fashion when you're working for somebody yeah. else. And conversely so many people over the years have said well you, you did fashion at co- college why don't you do it now why don't you create a line of clothing? Well I don't really need to, in a way, because I work with the most fabulous designers in the world. Do you have icons for yourself? I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. You, Tim. And that... <laughs> <laughs> Imran. Speaking I of... mean, nothing without you both. <laughs> Speaking of concrete plinths. Um, uh, no, I mean, in, in the, what, what's, what I think is really interesting is, that, is one of the things that's one of the many things that's really interesting is that you've made yourself something of a fashion historian that you've researched your job. You, you, you know its history probably much more than most of the people that you work with. When you look at the history of the hat, what stands out for you is in, in the history of the hat, are there hats that were watershed moments and millinery. Oh, yes, absolutely. Like what? I'm curious. I mean, there was the poke bonnet, for example, in the 18th century and 19th century as well. In the 20th century, there was the shoe hat from Scaparelli, which is probably one of the greatest hats of all time, which I've studied and have a pattern for even. Um, Have you ever made one for yourself just to see? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, but in fact, I blocked it on a Manolo Blahnik shoe because I thought he was doing the ultimate shoe shape, so it should be based on a Manolo shoe. And he's an old friend and sort of advised me early on in my career. Um, but yes, the shoe hat's extraordinary. Um, and in fact, so many hats made during wartime were fantastic too because... They were often recycled. They were made from things from between the wars. They were made from wood shavings, from old waistcoats, old buttons, all funny things. And uh, that's very much the Galliano mentality as it was, that idea of recycling. But you know, in times of strife, hats flourish. What can we say Ooh. about right now then? <laughs> well, hats should be flourishing now because I think we are living in times of strife. That's why hats are great because they can be just hats and simply optimistic and can be a fantastic tonic for the state of the nation. You did say that 
your hats are autobiographical. Mm -hmm. um, can you can you look at your hats, uh, look over the career and look over your career and see times when your hats reflected your blackest, most despairing moments? Yes, absolutely. And I would say that many of the early hats that I did in the early 80s were actually about sort of a, in reaction to a compensation or a reaction to a darkness, um, which is sometimes when they look ridiculously optimistic or quite dark themselves or a little bit gothic. And certainly the Blitz and around that time was a time of gothicism. I'm much happier being 62 years old than I was when I was 21. Really? Yeah, totally. Because the hedonism then was a sort of dancing on the lip of the volcano kind of hedonism. I mean, the world was really spiraling into a, a terrible abyss with AIDS and drugs and... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing that people don't really realize. Not so much the drugs thing, because that was from choice. But AIDS was certainly not, was not from that. Um, and when we were growing up, at a particular age, I mean, I came to London in 1976, which was really at the beginning of punk. And then punk within two or three years for us sort of fizzled out and it was replaced probably with new wave or something and the music and fashions mutated in, in, into something different. And because we were making our own new world, and I certainly was interested in making my own new world. And people look back and they say that early 80s time was so extraordinary because magazines like The Face and ID and Blitz magazine were all starting to happen. And John Mabry and Catherine Evans, and people, that, there, was, there was an extraordinary creative time where we all sort of rushed and helped each other. There was something which was sort of, in, I don't think we thought we were invincible, but there was a certain strength of character or strength of direction or possession that we were going to do that thing and we were going to remake the world and then AIDS happened and we I mean to say that we recognized our fallibility was an understatement and suddenly our world was was over we probably thought we would all die within a few years I mean I know Tim that you would have lived through the same... Were you living in America at that time? I was time? living in Toronto, yeah. Yeah, and the same thing was happening there. I mean, people did not know what it was. I remember there was this thing, and and I remember in, in my workroom, people wouldn't sit close to me in my workroom. I had to have my own pins, my own scissors, my own cup of coffee. And it wasn't... It wasn't because of their judgment. It was because people didn't know what was going mm. to happen. They had no idea. But we knew, as far as we were concerned, it was the end of the world. And I think that was the very dark period of design. And, and you... then the weird thing about that, in the middle of all of that, you had fashion and you had Paris and you had working with Thierry Mugler and doing the Zenith show and the beginning of Comme des Garçons. So... Fashion being a fantastic and maybe ridiculous antidote to the world's problems. Escape being an escape and communicating in a way that politics certainly never could. 
And do you think that is, do you think that prevails, that notion, that that, that is fashion's power in a way, that it is, it, as much as it reflects what's going on, it also, it also projects into this ideal world. Actually, not maybe not an ideal world. It reflects, it projects into a, it's a it's a commentary that 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 maybe illuminates ways forward in in some kind of idealistic or realistic way yeah, i don't know I mean, we say fashion but actually appearance of however we want to appear whether it's buying a new sparkly top from a fast fashion retailer and wearing it on a Friday night and having a fun time on the on the disco dance floor, that's what appearance and fashion is about. And yes, we can dance when things are falling down around us. Do you feel that's the power of your work too? Well, I hopefully when you put a hat on, the world does not fall around. Well, if it <laughs> does, the hat protects you from it falling around. <laughs> it's like a helmet. Sometimes the amount of wire we put in <laughs> would be protection <laughs> when the siren goes off. But yeah, I mean, I, I, but people use fashion and appearance for all sorts of different reasons. But certainly hats are used in a very basic way of communication. You know, in tribal societies, um, you might be naked but you will still have something on your head. It's such a signifier of power, status, um, wealth, youth, masculinity, femininity. It's the, the most visible sign on the body. How would you say your feelings about the hat have changed from being 21 to being 62? Apart from it becoming your world, but also what do you... What do you feel about the hat now? I feel about me, hats have mutated throughout the centuries. Not only my hats, but other people's. And people say, oh, a hat's going back into fashion. Well, yes, maybe here, but maybe in France it's going down, maybe in America. You know, it's, it's this thing which is always in movement. How are my, hat, uh, my attitudes to hats? I think, obviously then, when I was 21, it was the great unknown. Now I know much more about it. But the crazy thing about fashion is that every six months you have to reinvent yourself. So there's always new things to do, new places to go. And if you think you know it and know how to do it, well, maybe you're just getting lazy because you don't know how to do it. So what? So you say there's every every six months you have to sort of reassess. So what's your challenge now when you, you approach a, 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 a season now? Do you... Do you feel you need to be wilder? Do you feel you need to be, you, you, you have the freedom to be more sculptural? Or what, what's, the, what's the story right now? The story right now is that maybe it's great to inspire people, inspire myself, and I have a business to run, and many, many, many different things. And I want to have fun with designing. And that fun in appearance is something that I really want to communicate to other people that they can have fun with their appearance too. And that even though the world might be falling down around them, we just spoke about this before, that there is something that they can do for themselves or I could do for them with a hat. I don't, in a, in a funny way, the reasons why I do it 
I don't think about too much. But it is my chosen method of expression in the way that a mathematician is numbers are their chosen way of expression and a, you know whatever you do it gets to a point in life where if you have to say something about something you can do it through speech or you can do it through any of the senses and I choose to do it through hats. I, I think posterity will recognize the enchantment of what of what you did you know of what you do that um, we live in an age where people talk about storytelling as being very critical in fashion and everywhere else. You need to have a narrative. And, you know, I, I look at the hats. I walk through your, your shop here or looking at the show in Brighton or any of the exhibitions that, and everything is telling you a story. The hats speak. Hats speak in a way that nothing else does. It's quite strange. Yeah. You know, when... Um the Hats and Anthology by Stephen Jones traveled the world. It was the second higher, had the second highest visitor numbers of any decorative arts exhibition. The biggest one was um, American Woman at the Met, the, but we did more than Saint Laurent at the Petit Palais. Now, it wasn't because they were fabulous Stephen Jones hats, it's just because hats communicate in that way. I have one last question for you because it it, 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 it it does make me laugh. The story I read about you being passed out on New Year's Eve 1980 and your friend shaving your head. Yeah. And you never grew your hair back because you realized that your head was a perfect size to try hats on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you – I remember I asked Manolo Blahnik whether he's ever tried his own shoes on and he said no. And I was – and just he's lying, one. I'm sure. <laughs> I, just, there was once. There was one time. There was one time. But do you try all your hats on? Uh, not all of them. But if I'm trying to design something, there will be a point where I'll try it on myself and see what rhythm it has to it. Because the only way that you can check the rhythm and the balance in the hat is by putting it on. And it just highlights and puts everything into focus. It's like cleaning the lens on a camera that suddenly it is all there do you have a favorite hat no not really it changed i mean you can say somewhat tritely my favorite hat's the next one i'm going to design but no that's not true there's a few hats which are my favorites um there was a hat called rose royce which was a, a little top hat which is the top is sort of scrolled into this flower which sounds a bit naff but there's something which is simple but effective. <laughs> um, but no, it changes all the time. It really changes all the time. Um, and do I have a... Do I wear a favourite hat emotionally myself? I'm... Somehow, at the moment, I'm being cast into wearing a favourite hat by the fashion world. Um, which is something which comes when you're 62 and doesn't come when you're 35, which is being this sort of grandee of the fashion world, which sort of, who sort of dispenses um, words of wisdom, which I think is totally hilarious. I remember I once, my mother once saying to me, you know, give me an irresponsible 16-year-old, I'll give you an irresponsible 60-year-old, and I've hit that age. And I also remember at this time that... Um, I did a fashion show at Bodolf Goodman, 
And this was with Dawn Mello, who was this extraordinary lady who then went on to Gucci and hired Tom Ford to be the designer at Gucci. And she was head of Photo Goodman, and you could not meet somebody who is more elegant or soigné than her. And we were doing this little hat show afternoon, you know, after lunch with 30 clients. And we had various girls who were sort of house models and also worked in the department. And we were waiting in, in very much backstage. It was in the non-glamorous, uncarpeted corridor of Bergdorf Goodman. And I said I was terribly worried about the show. I mean, not actually in tears, but almost in tears and saying, I think it's going to look I said to her, I said to Dawn, I think it's going to look really, really amateur. And she said, oh, Stephen, don't worry. She said, we're all amateurs desperately trying to look professional. And I've kept that with me for mm, 35 years or something. Because, yes, I think if you feel that you have become professional, that's a sort of slightly arrogant. You know, we always learn. We learn every season by what we're doing. And then you have to build that into the design and create something new. Well, I think you've done that very persuasively. <laughs> I, f I feel I've just been talking to a consummate professional. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, we all make it up as we go along. Don't you? <laughs> no, look at me. Do I look like I make any? No, I make everything up. What am I saying? I live in a fantasy world. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might be interested in BOF Professional, our global membership community from the business of fashion. BOF Professional members receive unlimited access to all of our articles, daily members-only analysis, the BOF Professional iPhone app, biannual print issues, and all of our online education courses as part of your membership. For a limited time only, we are offering BOF Podcast listeners an exclusive discount on an annual BOF Professional membership. To get 25% off of your first year, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special... In you know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. 
It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Invitation code podcast 2019 at the checkout. We hope you enjoy it and don't forget to tell your friends. <laughs> 